Good morning. It's great to see everybody who is with us this morning. We're certainly excited for everybody who could be here, and we want to say uh, a warm welcome to those who are visiting. We're thankful for you and your answer to our prayers, and we're just thankful for everybody who can make it today. Our hope and prayer is that what we have to cover would be glorifying to God and that it would edify us in some way. Just to introduce our thoughts, we have a reading. And by way of introduction, we'll start. Jewelry parlors utilize a specific tactic when they attempt to sell their most costly diamonds and pearls. Display areas and commercials are designed with dark backgrounds placed behind each item of jewelry. They do this in order to magnify the brightness of the diamond or jewel. The sharp contrast between the light and darkness helps to convey the beauty of the product, making it appear much more glamorous and easier to sell. Oftentimes, God uses this same tactic throughout the Bible. God can take a dark background full of sin, wickedness, and destruction and provide a glimmering jewel to highlight His glory and majesty. But unlike the jewelry parlor... God does not make the background dark himself. Instead, he allows mankind to dictate their own shade. And that is exactly what we find in the book of Daniel. In one of the darkest periods of God's people, the prophet Daniel shines forth as a diamond in the rough. This was a time when God's people were taken away from their homes in Jerusalem and taken into Babylonian captivity. The story of Daniel provides us with an extraordinary example and how to follow God in stressful times surrounded by sin. Daniel's courage and conviction is something that each and every Christian can learn from. And because of that, we will study this man's life in a sermon titled, Dare to Be a Daniel. But before we go any further, we have the honor and privilege of going to our Heavenly Father in a word of prayer. So let us do so at this time. We'll go ahead and begin our study. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried in the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Asphenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the son of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Within these verses, we learn of the context of the book as a whole. 
in biblical chronology, we find ourselves after the books of Jeremiah and Lamentation, which record the preaching of Jeremiah the weeping prophet. For many years, the prophet Jeremiah warned the kingdom of Judah of the impending judgment that would come if the people refused to serve God and continued in their rejection and rebellion of him. But unfortunately, the people did not listen. They did not obey God. And as a result, the holy city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and an event which was predicted by God himself. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem marked one of the darkest periods of God's people. This event served as a divine commentary, teaching that God had finally punished his people for their backsliding. This was not done because God had forsaken his people. This was done because God's people had already forsaken God. And during this time, all hope seemed to be lost. In verse 3 of our reading, we learn that King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a very particular and specific plea. He's captured, and he's captured these people, and he tells them, look, I want some of their young men. And I don't just want some of their young men. There's specific criteria I want and who you gather. And the criteria, or the criteria for the captives was as followed. He wanted young men. He wanted men of royal or noble lineage. He wanted them to be physically flawless and intellectually brilliant. Nebuchadnezzar wanted the best of the best from Judah to serve him in his royal courts. But one of the criteria is of special interest, and that's of the underlined one, being of royal or noble lineage. The reason why this is so beautiful and so important is because God predicted this was going to happen over 120 years beforehand. The Bible says in 2 Kings chapter, chapter 20, verses 16 through 18, and Isaiah chapter 39, verses 5 through 7, it says the same thing in both. We're just going to read the top. In 2 Kings 20, verse 16, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the, excuse me, hear the words of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Even before Daniel comes into the picture, God reminds us that he is faithful. One thing that we forget is that God is not just a faithful deliverer. He's a faithful punisher. When he says he's going to punish a group of people, it happens. When he says he's going to save a group of people, it happens. All of this went back to the promise and prophecy given to their forefathers, the past kings of Judah. Finding young men who fit the criteria was not enough. King Nebuchadnezzar did not want the young men to remain influenced by their Hebrew heritage. In order to combat this process, he put these young men into a three-year indoctrination schooling program. Now, this is what you do if you're a conqueror. This is what you do to make your greatest adversaries your greatest asset. What we're about to study real quick is Operation Assimilation. 
Here is what King Nebuchadnezzar did to assimilate the people, these young Jewish boys, into Babylon. In verse 3, we learn he put them in isolation. He took them away from their friends and their family. He took them away at the most vulnerable, the most moldable time of their life. He took them away from home. And he removed their parents as their spiritual guides. And in verse 4, we learn they are put in Babylonian education. Instead of, instead of reading from and learning from the Torah and the Old Testament, learning of the one and true holy God of Israel, they are taught about the pagan gods. They are taught all forms of astrology and witchcraft. And not only that, these people in their new home, the Babylonians, served to give them provision. They took these guys away from home at a very early age, and they started to act like their parents. We'll give you the best food. We'll give you the best clothing. Whatever we got to do just so you like this place more, so you change easier. But the last thing they did is of special interest. In verses 6 and 7, we learned they changed their identification. They changed their identity. Now, one thing we're about to look at in a second is that the names of these men, of these young boys, are changed. Now, today, names don't really mean a whole lot. Um, we know that in the Bible, names are important. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had the promised son. Isaac's name means laughter because Sarah laughed and Abraham laughed when the son was promised. We know Benjamin means son of my right hand. His name was formerly Benoni, son of my sorrow. That's because Jacob named him that because, or excuse me, Sarah named him that because she died in childbearing. So he quite literally was a son of sorrow. We say this to say that names in the Bible have meaning. And the same can be said for these men. The Hebrew name, Daniel, <coughs> excuse me, means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means may Balak protect. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. His name is changed to Shadrach, which means the command of Aku. Mishael, who is what God is. Meshach, who is what Aku is. And lastly, Azariah, the Lord has helped. Abednego, servant of Nebu. As you can see, these young men were given names to glorify the one and true God of Israel at birth. But when they went to Babylon, their names were changed to glorify the pagan gods of Babylon. And these young men were expected to identify with their new names and their new religion. The purpose behind all of these changes was to assimilate the new captives into Babylonian society. The whole point of all of this is that this worked. This operation assimilation tactic, it's been used throughout all of history. The Spanish used this with the Aztecs putting them in the mission system. Americans did this with Native Americans in the Trail of Tears. All you got to do is take someone away from home, change the way they live, the way they talk, what they believe in, and you made them a friend and not a foe any longer. But watch this. 
Despite all of this, the Bible says in Daniel 1 and verse 8, But Daniel, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Despite all of the disadvantages and all it stacked against him. Here we see Daniel away from home, away from his father and his mother. He's got a new language. He's got a new name. He's got a new religion. Supposed to. He's got a new way to live. He did not care about any of that. He only cared when he started to mess with how he obeyed God. Despite all of the odds stacked against him, he chooses to remain faithful. And we see this was only possible because he purposed this within his heart. Daniel never lost sight of who he was and who the true God of Israel is. To Daniel, it did not matter where he lived, those who surrounded him, the language he spoke, or even his name. But what did bother him was when you messed with his God. And living in this new society, he had to refrain from the things he could eat and drink because of the law of Moses. But the main thing is this. The only way he could avoid these temptations is he had a plan. He had a plan to never waver in the sight of God. The psalmist had a plan on how to never waver. In Psalm 119 and verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God is the tool for the Christian to avoid and overcome all forms of temptation. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 Three times Satan tempts him, and each time Jesus says, It is written, it is written, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God is a sword, sharper than any two-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The word of God is the sword for the Christian to overcome Satan. This is what Daniel did, this is what the psalmist did. This is what Jesus did, and this is what we're going to do. We must have a plan in overcoming temptation. But Daniel teaches us a few other lessons up to this point. He teaches us, number one, his faith was his own. The Bible says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, And follow me. Now everybody who's a Christian has a cross to bear. The main thing I want to get from this is, I don't care who your dad is. I don't care who your mom is. I don't care who your grandpa is or who your uncle is. I doubt when you get to heaven, you're going to say, I'm with him. Your faith has to be your own or I, I guarantee you, you will not make it. I guarantee that for you. The Bible says here, Jesus says, everyone's got a cross to bear, and it's your own. And he says in other places, yeah, help one another out, but if you fail, it's because of you. We're all in this collectively, but it's on our shoulders individually where we go, heaven or hell. Our faith's got to be our own. Lesson number two, You must have a plan. 
We already kind of touched up on this, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27 says, 24 says this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Paul, he's talking to some Greeks. He's talking about the Olympics. He says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. They're careful in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Back then they didn't have gold. They had these flowers they put on themselves. The flowers would die. Their crown is perishable. But we, for an imperishable, not a temporary crown, but an eternal crown, this we run for. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified. We must have a plan. We must be disciplined disciples. We must be careful in all things. The third thing we learn is that from Daniel's example, it is possible to live in the world, but not to be of the world. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Not only was Daniel prepared to face temptation, <coughs> he welcomed the testing of his faith. After refusing to eat the unscriptural foods and drinks, the Bible says in Daniel 1 and verse 11, So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of, of the eunuchs had over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. And let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you. And the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Daniel welcomed the testing of his faith. I got to just say this real quick. No matter what kind of te test we're talking about, tests are not fun. Whether that's at school whether that's at work, tests are not fun. They're only fun if you're prepared. And even that, they're still not really fun. Daniel, he welcomed testing. And the reason why he welcomed testing was because he was prepared. He knew who God was, he knew who God is, and he chose to follow him above anyone else. But we got to ask the question, why would he welcome testing? The Bible says in James chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Testing, it's painful, but it's profitable. You get patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking Nothing. Brother Permenter spoke on this concept a few weeks ago, and I want to kind of dive into this again. Testing of trials. The testing of trials, it produces and it perfects our faith. 
another verse. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this verse, the Apostle Peter is talking to Christians, they are quite literally about to face a fiery trial. It says that later on in 1 Peter. The trial they were facing was Emperor Nero was quite literally putting Christians in the Colosseum and lighting them on fire or giving them the lions. And what Peter does is he talks about this fire. He says, yeah, your faith, when you're tested, it's like gold. And in the Greek, he calls our attention to this process of a gold refiner. Now, a gold refiner, before he's got a diamond or gold, he's got to do something first. He's got to expose this mineral to extreme amounts of heat. So he puts it in the furnace, and it melts, and it melts, and the impurities, when he pulls it out, the impurities, they come to the surface. And he does this over and over and over again. And you know how he knows he's done? When he does this long enough, eventually, you can see your own reflection in the gold or the diamond or the pearl. That's exactly what God does with us. God allows us to be tested. We are put into the fiery trials of life so that the impurities of our life and of our faith come to the surface. And I know, when I have a trial, I know, huh, I didn't have patience right then and there. I need patience. And my flaws become much more evident. God does this over and over and over again with us until the day where he looks at the diamond of our faith and he sees his reflection in us. God wants to see himself in us. So testing is not against us, it's for us. So we can be like him. The highest of the highest and the most holy. Daniel understood this concept and that's why he welcomed the testing of his faith. And I want to just say this real quick. Everybody wants to grow. Everybody wants to grow spiritually. But no one wants to suffer. These two concepts are inseparable. It's kind of like working out. Everybody wants to be in shape. No one wants to get in shape. That's how it is spiritually. We got to be like Daniel where we welcome testing. And we're okay with that. And that's how you know a mature Christian from a not mature Christian. Is if we welcome testing, if we're prepared for it. They were prepared for it. God delivered Daniel. But this was not to be the final time that God saved him. Later on in Daniel chapter 2, we learn about that King Nebuchadnezzar, he's got a troubling dream. He's got a dream so bad. And he just says, I want all of the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, I want you guys to tell me my dream or to interpret my dream. And you know what? That's a reasonable request because that's their job. But then he threw this little, he threw this little, wild card. He said, but here's the kicker. 
I'm not going to tell you my dream. And if you don't tell me my dream, I'm going to kill you all. And this included Daniel and the other men. So what do these men do? The Bible says this. Daniel 2.14. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. During this time of distress, Daniel does the best thing anybody could ever do. He goes to God in prayer first. And that's what we are commanded to do in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There's two ways you can view prayer. Some people view prayer as a spare tire. It's what you go to when it's emergency. Other people view prayer as their steering wheel. It directs every decision of their life. It's not the emergency. It's what you do all the time. Daniel, the first thing he did was he prayed. God's people must be prayerful. When we have troubles, we will pray. We will pray to God. And God answers his prayers. And he's once again proven faithful. But have you ever wondered in your life how Daniel can have this great of faith? I know. I know. We're about to see this. Daniel's life was oddly similar to someone else's life. And that's Joseph. Both of these men were taken by captivity by his, because of their wicked brethren and taken to a foreign land. Genesis 37, Jeremiah 5. Both of them were given a foreign name. In both stories, Pharaoh, or the ruler, the emperor, has a troubling dream. The soothsayers and astrologers fail to help in both stories. God helps Joseph and he helped Daniel in this interpretation process. Both of them gave the credit to God. And both of them, because of this, were highly exalted in the empire. I believe with all my heart, the only reason why Daniel was faithful was because someone had already been there, done that in the past. He had the Torah. He had the Pentateuch. He had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He would have read this from a young age. And he learned from it. And that's how he got through the trial in his life. This is how we're supposed to react and act as Christians. The Bible says in Romans 15 and verse 4, for whatever things were written before in the Old Testament were written for our learning. 
that we might, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. You got a problem? You go to the Bible to see if anybody else has had the same problem. And how they answered this adversity. Step number two, you go to someone else who's been there and done that who's still alive. The Bible says in Proverbs 1 and verse 5, A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Proverbs 19 and 20, Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. Seek the counsel from God's word. Seek counsel from men of God. And we will be wise in our latter days, that is, in our elderly years. But because of the wise counsel sought in his earlier days, Daniel was wise in his latter days, at a time when his greatest challenge would come. Later on in the book of Daniel, before we read this verse, we learn that Daniel was delegated to a prominent position in the Babylonian Empire. After he helped King Nebuchadnezzar, he helped King Darius of the Medo-Persian Empire. But this position prompted jealousy and conspiring on behalf of the members in the royal courts. The Bible says in Daniel verse six and, chapter 6 and verse 3, then this time, then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault in him. These men carefully analyzed Daniel's life in order to find an angle of attack on his reputation and status. But in this verse, we're reminded of a critical concept. And that's this. When you're out and about, when you're living your life, people are watching you everywhere you go. The people of the world and Christians are watching what you say and what you do. When you go to school, people are watching. When you're at work, people are watching. When you're shopping, people are watching. When you're just driving, people are watching. And four years ago, in a gym at Oakdale, California, I was watching. I was watching some young guys. And they were there. They did not curse. They did not swear. We did not even talk about God. And I could see that they were from God. People are watching, and I'm afraid to tell you, not everyone else, not everyone here has a good reputation outside these walls. Not everyone here, not everybody that's a Christian has a good standing in the community, let alone in the congregation. How you live affects where other people see you're from. And if they think we're not from here, this church, they ain't never going to come here. We got to be the change that they see, the one that brings them to Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Those young guys at the gym were doing that. They were doing that. And I was watching unbeknownst to them. 
and I obeyed the gospel. And six months later, at the same gym, there was someone else who was watching. And he was watching me. And that's Brother Zach Miller. Be that person for someone. Not because I said so. No one cares what I think. I don't even care what I think. But Jesus commands this, and he expects this. Name a command you can break and it'd be okay. This is a command. Those jealous men found no wickedness in Daniel, but this did not stop their scheming. In Daniel chapter 6 and verse 5, the Bible says, Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. What this is saying is, this guy's squeaky clean. We can't find a fault. We can't find an accusation. The only way we're going to trip him up, it's got to be with his religion. I've said this in the past uh, at other places when I've taught here. It's kind of different. I need to clarify some things here. As the preacher, some people think you're like the sheriff, that you got to know everything, and that you're just trying to get in everybody's business and all that, and that's really not the case. People share stuff with you, even the stuff you don't even want to know or need to know. I want to submit to you this. I don't try and ruin anyone's life. I don't, that's not at all. But I want to ask you this. How easy would you make it for me if that was my goal to ruin your life and to find every flaw? How easy would that be for me to find some trash in your life? We all need to be thinking about this because how we live determines how other people see us and if they will follow us. The story continues in verse 6. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. After their investigation of Daniel's life, it became crystal clear that if they wanted to attack Daniel, they had to do it through his faith. He did not have any personal baggage for them to use against him. Not at all. The jealous men would go on to spitefully suggest to King Darius that anyone who obeyed or prayed or served any other god but King Darius was going to be killed. They were going to be sent into the den of lions. So he, he's a king, and all kings, they think they're from God. And he goes and he goes, that's a pretty good idea. I like that. So he signs the decree. Well, the thing about the Medo-Persians is that once a law is passed, it can't be changed. It can't be undone. So that's where they got him. They couldn't trip Daniel himself. They had to trip the one who was over Daniel. That was the king. So they sign it and... Adverse times are coming. Look how Daniel responded. 
Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. He hears of the bad news. This is a bad man. This guy, he goes home. He doesn't even care. He just keeps on serving God. He goes home, opens the windows. He faces Jerusalem, a place scholars believe he hadn't even been at for 50 years. He looks at home, longing for home in the temple of God. But he has not forgotten God. His religion was not restricted to where he lived. God was with him wherever he went because he put God first. And he goes with his windows open, he prays. Now, this is the biggest I don't care what you think in the Bible. He opens the windows after they said, no, 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 you can't do that. And he said, watch me. He opens the windows. He said, I've done this since I was young. I ain't going to stop. I don't even care who you are. And he prays to God three times. He just keeps on keeping on. What faith, what strength, what devotion. And the story continues. But before we continue, we learn a valuable lesson. We need to follow in Daniel's example. Jesus said in Luke 9, 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers, and of the holy angels. Daniel does the same thing the first century church did in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. Are we to obey God rather than man? Yeah. Daniel exemplified this example in the Old Testament, and Peter and the rest of the apostles in the New, we cannot be ashamed of God, no matter the circumstances. But his actions led to his punishment. King Darius was tricked and he realized it. He was forced to comply with the decree and thus he was sent into the lion's den. Many artists throughout history, they try to picture this event and give it justice. And I really like this picture, but even this picture doesn't do justice. Here we see a man standing for God in his elderly years, not wavering. Not wavering due to the circumstances. He's placed in the lion's den. We're so detached from how ferocious animals are here. It's really, I can't even justly describe how big of a deal it would be to be in the presence of lions. The best way I can put this is this is like being strapped into the electric chair. This is, about, this is like get about, about to being fired on by the firing squad. This is a death sentence. Everybody in the royal palace, they thought, yeah, we took care of him. He's gonzo. And I guarantee you, it doesn't say this, I guarantee you he didn't sleep that night. This was a night without sleep. This was a night with anxiety, with fears, with struggles, a night with the lions. 
And we, we've probably never been in that situation, but we have the lions of life too. They come in different forms and shapes and sizes. Whether it's what's going on at work, what's going on with your wife or husband, whether that's going on with your kids, your neighbors, the church, we have the stresses of life. And we must follow in Daniel's example because God is faithful. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 6, in verse 23, Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in God. Despite everything, he still followed God, and God delivered him. In the Hall of Faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, Daniel is spoken of even though he's not named. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 and verse 32, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, it's talking about Daniel in Daniel 6. Quench the violence of fire. That's talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery trial. Escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Became valiant in battle. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. That's the story. You've known the story your whole life. I want to ask a final question. How does he do this? How does he have this amount of faith in his elderly years? It's one thing to read this, but it's another thing to realize this happened. This is true. The way that Daniel overcame, we can learn about it. Not in the life of Daniel, but in the life of David. In 1 Samuel 17, our last verse for our study, the Bible says this. This is when they had to kill Goliath, and Dan, or David, he volunteers. 1 Samuel 17 and verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and I struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard, and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Seeing he has defied the armies of the living God, moreover David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. When David had to prove he was big and bad enough to overcome Goliath, he said to, he said to Saul, This guy ain't nothing. I've already killed a bear and a lion growing up. And what he teaches us is that because I went through that, I can go through this. There is no giant that can overcome me because I'm with God. And he teaches us a valuable lesson. The problems of your past prepare you for the trials of your present. 
One of the hardest things I've ever done is be a preacher. One of the hardest things I've ever done. These last six months have been the hardest months of my life. Not just with what's going on in my life, but all the things you got to know and the things you got to try and help people through and all of that good stuff, the stuff you love. But I wouldn't be able to handle this giant unless it was because of the bear or the lion in my past. You see, something that not even the brethren at Oakdale know is that I was homeless about two years ago. And I was homeless because there was something going on at home. There was a sin going on at home that I could not put up with. This person wasn't even a Christian. And I knew this sin that's going on, how could I stand and work with the church and tell someone to stop doing that when someone in my own house does that? I'd be the sorriest preacher that ever lived. I asked nicely for them to stop, and they did not. So I was homeless for two days. And the, the only people I knew I could go to were Jordan and Cheryl, Stacy's parents. I had other people I could have gone to, but they had a young daughter, and I didn't want to mess up the family dynamic of you bring in a young guy who's not even in the family. So out of thought for my brethren, I knew I couldn't even go to the ones I was the closest with. So I went with George and Cheryl. And it reminded me, I, since my time, I've been homeless before. I got an apartment. Now I'm homeless still because home is in heaven. We got to stop thinking like this is home because it's not. Everything you've gone through, your dad, your mom, your sister, your brother, whatever has prepared you for this moment. God has delivered you in the past. He will deliver you now because the power is with God. Being with him, we can get through it all. In quick review, here's what we've learned in our sermon. We must purpose within our, within our hearts to serve God. We overcome temptation with scripture. We must develop our personal faith. We must have a plan in overcoming sin. We must live in the world but not be of the world. We need to welcome testing. When there is a problem, we pray first. Search the scriptures for examples in overcoming. Seek wise counsel from those who are spiritually minded. Be a light for someone. We cannot be ashamed of Christ. Use past experiences to strengthen our faith. Start when you are young. Dare to be a Daniel. But before you can become a Daniel, you must become a Christian. The Bible says that when someone becomes a Christian, they must first hear the word of God, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repent and change the way you live, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, live faithfully unto death, and you will give a, be given a crown of life. Maybe you're here and you're already a Christian. You want to ask for prayers for forgiveness of a sin in a private, of a private matter or a public matter. Whatever is the case, we'd love to help you. Please come while we stand and sing the song of invitation.